welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm very pleased to be talking again today with John Spencer. John is a retired army major of the US military with over 25 years experience in active combat, including two combat deployments to Iraq as infantry platoon leader in 2003 and company commander in 2008. John is an expert in urban warfare. John actually has his own podcast on matters of urban warfare called the Urban Warfare Project. I'll put a link to that in the show notes, but it can also be found on all of the regular podcast apps. John is also chair of Urban Warfare Studies at the Madison Policy Forum. So thanks for joining me again on the podcast today, John. Oh, thank you. It's an honor to be back. So today we're actually going to talk about a mini manual for conducting urban warfare that you wrote and then got translated into Ukrainian and distributed to Ukrainian defense forces as a kind of a how-to guide for engaging in urban combat and this was post 24th of February with the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine when obviously fighting in urban areas was exceptionally relevant for Ukrainian defense forces. So I guess first of all I want to ask you this manual is very detailed and very authoritative. So like really down to the last detail of what type of first aid should you have and how do you go to the toilet and maintain good hygiene. I was wondering as I was reading it is a lot of this based on your own experience fighting in urban areas in Iraq or is it more based on a kind of conceptual understanding of what's needed in urban battles? Yeah, that's a great question. So clearly it is a little bit of both. So it's a uh, 25 years of military experience starting off as a soldier, being a sergeant, being a an instructor at our premier leadership school called the Ranger School. So some of that's in there like the fact that I know that non-battle injuries or just getting sick creates more injuries in war than any bullets. So, you know, there's stuff in there about washing your hands and keeping the bathroom away from the food. um how to turn water you know make it safe all this aspects are really kind of what i learned as soldiering and then of course i had two combats in in iraq that were heavily urban focused but really the basis of it is i've been studying urban warfare only dedicated academic study of urban warfare since as early as 2014 learning the lessons of past battles learning understanding the doctrine of many armies and traveling the world to past urban battles i was just in um the second battle of Nagorno-Karabakh I was just visiting that uh, right before the Ukraine war kicked off gathering all these lessons of what works and what doesn't work and what was some very simple things that people who have held out or won in urban defenses I put that all into this manual because I don't want to rely only on my experiences although some aspects of soldiering may not be common sense to new soldiers or civilians in this case but it's really said that long almost decade long study of urban warfare Yeah, that makes sense because I can imagine that whilst there are some commonalities to all urban battles, so you could rely on your own experience in that regard, there would also be differences where you need to sort of extrapolate and understand from what's happened in different battles in different urban contexts. So, as far as I understand, this mini manual actually started out as 
a Twitter thread. And from there evolved into this very detailed manual, which was then, as I said, translated into Ukrainian, as well as a bunch of other languages and really used by the Ukrainian Defence Forces. So can you talk us through that process? Yeah, absolutely. So I didn't set out to write a manual for Ukraine and ended up I did. Um, it started off on 24 February as when Russia conducted their illegal invasion. I watched it like everybody else do, unfolding on this new, you know, some people call it TikTok war, this new social media aspect of it. And I saw the Ukrainian government telling everybody to go out and resist. Matter of fact, they you know, in, incorporated martial law, no adult male military age could leave, go out and fight. And that was pretty much the extent of the instructions was make Molotov cocktails, go out and resist. Now, having been there recently and, and understand that, of course, there was a, a system for the volunteers and the veterans to get weapons from their community and, and go out and fight. But as I was watching this from the United States, I was like, well, you can't just tell people go out and resist. And I felt like I really felt a need to do something. So I started tweeting on February 24th. If I was, as an old soldier who studied a little bit of urban warfare, if I was in a city, and at first I was kind of hesitant to say if I was in key or if I was in this city, this is what I would do. I, so some of it was more general. If I was in a city being invaded by Russia, this is what I would do. You know, I would go out and block the streets. I would start establishing positions I would fire from. I would start teaching people to, to gather together as groups and worry about protecting from the bombs that will start to come. And I did that in a seven thread tweet. And to my surprise, that tweet went viral. Last time I checked, it had 2 million impressions, but it, it kind of went viral. And then as I saw this, that there were lots of people that were interested and I knew that I was getting to Ukraine. I started making little diagrams because what I learned in soldiering as well is that people under stress, whether you're a soldier or a civilian, can't take like, hey, read this manual, this complex manual that you, you have to know a lot to already understand it. So I literally almost stick figure started diagrams of don't stand in the open, like a check mark, like an X of standing in the open and a check mark of being inside the building, you know, if you're going to fire from a building. And those tweets with images also did you know, went very viral. And but as you know, the the function of Twitter kind of the feed kind of goes away and then people start following you and they start asking questions like, well, yeah, I tweeted that out yesterday. So then I was asked, like, hey, you gotta you gotta do more than this. So initially, I just took all the tweets I had produced over like a week, put them into a, something and called it the mini manual for the urban defender, uh, and then put it as a PDF on my website, free to download to anybody. I was then contacted by certain people saying, English is great. There are a lot of people in Ukraine that read English, but it would also be more helpful if I translated it for you into Ukrainian. And as the war continued, I did start receiving feedback, like I, or I started watching because we can all watch, right? So I watched somebody drive up to a tank with a Molotov cocktail, throw it out the window. And I'm like, don't, well, don't do that. And so I had to put things in the manual of things not to do while also putting things to do. The urban environment allows, again, from my understanding of hasty obstacles that have happened in almost every major urban battle, like go out and park a dump truck in the street and don't just stand there or put sandbags, which don't stop much, like use the urban environment. So this back and forth of watching, observing people, direct messaging, the manual evolved and I started putting out versions of the manual. And then without me knowing that the images that I talked about in the beginning were all taken by the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense and put on a website meant for resistors. And all of a sudden I see my name without me knowing it, full page credited me with just a thread of it. And then as the manual get into the further version, the Ukrainian translation that happened, I then put that up the PDF, the Ukrainian military then took the manual, put it out on their website 
And then finally, last, uh, a Ukrainian publisher of a book co company, the publisher took and asked permission to publish 100,000 copies of it. So one, I was extremely honored. And of course, I make no money. So of course, I, I said, absolutely. And they started publishing it. And that's where we're at today, where this Ukrainian publisher in Ukraine is publishing mass amounts and distributing it to the army and to what they call it, the volunteers of territorial defenses. As the, you know, the war has kind of transitioned, this is the evolution of that. Then I started having people like from Taiwan asking, could we translate this for us? And like, I'm an open book. I'm, and in the argument, I think we've discussed this before, the bad guy is getting it versus the good guy is getting it. So I've taken it as a kind of an author of, look, this is free copyright. And there's like eight languages right now with two other ones in the work. Um, Mandarin was probably the hardest for Taiwan. Uh, and then multiple other versions of it as this concept that all civilians will resist. It's not new, right? So in, especially in Europe, it's very, very historic that you know, they're going to rise up and invaded. But Ukraine, based on many reasons, especially the, the establishment of this, this veteran population from their war already that they've had to fight for their existence, many veterans in the community who then take this information and can then quickly bring a civilian or a new army recruit up to speed on there's a lot to know, right? And But these images that I'm really fond of help. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm wondering also how much contact have you had? I mean, I know you've literally just been in Ukraine, which I think is the first time you've been there since the 24th of February. So since the full-scale Russian invasion, when you were mentioning some of the tactics there of urban warfare, I was thinking, oh yeah, I've seen those things happening like in Kyiv in the early days. So how much contact have you had with Ukrainians and how much do you know about how that manual actually really did or is informing tactics currently on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been honored to receive messages as early as you know the second week of the invasion war, where many foreign fighters, foreign reporters rushed in and started helping with training. So I have, you know, without giving away, I have images from as early as the second week of Ukrainian resistors with images that I had put out on Twitter, looking at them as they're preparing for Russians coming their way. I have images of it before the Ukrainian publisher even published it, other people were published it even in a little mini format. I have images of that in like checkpoints in around the Kyiv. You did see a transition from kind of hasty obstacles to buses parked in the streets and mm -hmm. dump trucks. You're using some of the key things that I was talking about, like you used urban terrain immediately happening. So lots of feedback all throughout Ukraine. And I've actually received a message, which is incredibly humbling to me in Mariupol, that Mariupol and Azovstal had my manual. Now I don't have an image of that. So I'll take that, that input from a kind of a secret source as truth. But how humbling is that on this historic battle and that they had my manual? And not to say that they're following it step-by-step, step, but maybe it helps somebody flipping through it. Um, like you said, there's medical things in there, right? So more, there's more in there about protecting themselves than there is about fighting. Although as people, they started to get a little bit more about fighting in there because people were asking for it, like ambushes and things like that. But mm -hmm. how humbling is it that I've received these messages to say, and I do believe in this, this is a fight against good versus evil, um, especially after like the things that we've seen the Russians do. So I even after returning, like you said, first time there, really studying the Battle of Kiev where they potentially used, and I have the images, right? So use the manual to help better defend after the first week or so and establish this porcupine of a city. I come back now with even more motivation to add even more as they they understand like this isn't the end of their, 
their fight. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I'm sure a lot of those stories will also only be revealed once, you know, all of this is over, however it ends. A lot of the manual deals with dimensions of urban conflict, like needing to protect civilian populations. So it's not just those kind of urban warfare tactics, but it's also more broadly, how do you behave in an urban environment as combat units? And I wanted to ask you about this because you do emphasize that importance of you really need to protect civilian lives. And of course, in an urban environment, maybe more so than other terrains, you really have this mix of combatants and non-combatants in the same geographic area. How does that work when the invading force that you're fighting against doesn't seem to have much respect or doesn't seem to be taking care to avoid civilian casualties? And that's something that we've seen. You mentioned Bucha, but that's something we've seen with the Russian invading forces. So would that play in the favour of defenders because then that invading military basically just loses hearts and minds in one fell swoop of the domestic populations? Or would that play more into the hands of the aggressor military because they can cause so much more damage in an urban environment just without needing to care about are they actually also imposing costs on civilian populations? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I put a lot in the manual about protecting civilians and also protecting enemy prisoners of war, right? Because the Ukrainians are the good guys. They have to keep the moral high ground. So in a mini manual, maybe a civilian doesn't know that you are required under the laws of armed conflict, law of war, to do a bunch of things like protect enemy prisoners of war if you get them. And you're protecting civilians. If you're trying to protect yourself as a military, you still have these rules and this right to protect. You don't have to tell a Ukrainian military that you have to protect your own citizen, your families, of course, but there is aspects to ensuring that even when you're striking or counterattacking, that you're taking every bit of care, right? So Russian military would is required to follow laws about war and protect civilians in things like artillery strikes, missile strikes, and all of that. But we've seen from day one that the Russian military does not follow any law of war um, they they literally use war crimes as a method of warfare in Bucha, not in Mariupol, and striking buildings that are protected sites. As we have protected populations, we have protected sites, churches, everything you know, with kids in them, maternity hospitals, you name it. So in that situation where your enemy has no regard, they will actually use civilian deaths like we've seen, using humanitarian crisis as a tool to help and achieve their mission. That's what we saw in Russia. So it actually goes against the defender because it has to, it wants to protect, it doesn't have to, of course it wants to protect. And my, my tips on that were about, you know, getting to the underground and, and as a civilian, if you're not a fighter, helping protect yourselves. So that way the military can focus on protecting and defending in their own positions and things. So that's, you know, the underground is always a refuge for civilians. So getting underground, knowing what buildings to be in. But also the militaries in urban areas specifically, there's this, this thing we call the three-block war. And we saw that in Ukraine in the first week where you have the military fighting the Russians, but while also helping the civilians get to safety, right? How many pictures of, you know, helping civilians cross the European bridge, you know, getting them out of there. Those are Ukrainian uniformed fighters helping, not fighting and doing that. And again, that's a Russian tactic while Russians are like striking humanitarian quarters and things. So it goes against the defender when it has to help. Of course, it's going to and it wants to, but it, it reduces their combat power. 
So it, it, there's many aspects to what normally happens because we, we call the urban terrain the great equalizer because usually it, it, it hinders the attacker because you can't use all its resources because it's under the laws of war. There's a restraints of use of various weapons and, and the use of force and the rules of engagement. Of course, the Russians weren't constrained by that at all. So in this situation, it really, it goes against the defenders, but that's just the nature of defending your own land. You're going to defend your populations and get them to safety while you're fighting, which is really hard to ask people to do. Yeah. In some ways, I think that seems key to also understanding the bigger picture of what's happening in Ukraine right now, because urban battles should favor the defender. But then with sort of asymmetric warfare, we see that if that invading state is willing to use what we can call like barbarism, like is willing to basically have very little regard for civilian casualties and civilian costs, then they can actually gain some kind of advantage just through the brutality of their tactics. I wonder whether, you know, how are you kind of evaluating what we're seeing right now? Because we did see in the battles around Kiev that really there was an advantage for the defenders there. But now in Donbass, we're starting to see something that looks a little bit different, like where Russia is actually gaining some ground, even if it's slow and very costly. How are you sort of evaluating that in terms of the urban warfare perspective that we might expect the defender to have an advantage? But then there are obviously other things that are going to come into play, like we're probably seeing right now in the battles in Donbass. Yeah. So you always have to look at advantage, disadvantage based on the political objective of the military that's involved on both sides. So in the beginning, right, so the, the political objective of Russia was to get inside Kiev, to take the capital building and raise a flag. And it was all about time. Like they, they had to do it rapidly or their plan just started to unravel. And that's why defending and creating this porcupine worked so well and not taking any credit from in Ukraine from understanding your own urban areas to flooding rivers to take roads away from the Russians attacking not just one city but multiple rivers and the beauty of this and understanding where you have to hold where you just want to destroy versus hold the ground where it's so critical so in eastern Donbass I don't think there's anything less of an urban fight going on as all roads lead to urban. Russian objective is to take as much of uh, Donbass as possible. They have to take those critical urban areas. Now, who's defending, who's attacking is so hard to tell day to by day because all war involves some aspect of defending and attacking. In the urban terrain, though, like, like I said, historically, there are very simple tactics that the person who does it better will gain the kind of combat advantage. We say competitive advantage. Right, you're not going to outgun and outnumber the Russians, but you can fight better. So we're seeing in like places like Severodonetsk today, Ukrainians have learned every day and are evolving their capabilities on where to defend, and they're doing that well. Where to attack, uh, and then where to give ground when needed to, based on their political objective. It seems that Russia's been told take that city at all costs. But we've seen Ukrainians say, "Well, I'm going to pull back and let you." move in here. I've gotten most of the civilians out and I'm going to let you move into that building and I'm going to destroy that building. So that's just fighting smarter, understanding urban warfare better. So there's this argument that I've been asked, okay, now the defense is over. Now you need to make a mini manual for the urban attacker, right? Hmm. So I could do that, but the Ukrainians are already understanding many aspects of urban warfare that the Russians still aren't getting into their heads about where to defend, where to attack how to defend if you are stopping, because you're always defending it in some way. You may not be defending the entire city, but you're defending yourself when you stop. 
Russians are showing that they don't have that capability. So there, there is this aspect of attrition warfare that they're trying to fight while the, the Ukrainians are still using the urban terrain. But it is a day-by-day fight on understanding who's defending, who's attacking, who's bringing in more artillery as you, you see the ranges change. The terrain still matters. And those urban fights are critical as we're seeing. I mean, it does seem, as you're saying, in what we're seeing in the current battles, that whilst Russia has the advantage in terms of manpower and artillery, the Ukrainians seem to be more skilled in how they're fighting in those urban environments. From your perspective and also having been there, I mean, Ukrainians that I've spoken to seem to still have just as much will to fight as they did on the 24th of February, which is kind of amazing given the casualties that are now being experienced and the costs to the society. So how do you see this playing out? I mean, I guess outside Ukraine, a lot of people are saying almost like, well, Donbass will probably fall completely to Russia. How do you evaluate this if we look at that fact that the Ukrainians do seem to have that strong will to fight and also maybe be a bit more skilled in those urban environments, but then don't have that important advantage in terms of artillery and then also just basic numbers of people? Yeah, I agree with you. As And I was, to be honest, surprised that even in touring all the different locations to include Butcher, Penn, Hostomel, Boveri, you name it, all the way up north, the will, the resolve of the Ukrainian people, understanding this fight is not over. They're every day preparing for the next fight. I don't see this ending because you're running out of Ukrainian resolve to fight. And let's not forget, this is a country of 40 million. And let's say you just, just count the male population. They're not outnumbered. Now, yes, on the battlefront, on the, the front lines now, basically military versus military, maybe those numbers count. But like we saw in the Battle of Kiev, there were hundreds and hundreds of former Ukrainian military or a guy who got a little bit of training joining that fight. I, I think the, the Russians bit off more than they can chew on so many different levels. And while today they may be in positions of advantage in different locations, as the Western weaponry is rushing in, and I, I strongly believe it, we, we made some mistakes on the speed of getting it in there. We're trying to correct that every day. As they get the tools, they're not going to lose the resolve. Russian resolve on the front line has been questioned from day one, right? The morale, the units quitting the fight. I mean, you're, I don't think you're going to experience that in Ukraine anytime soon. Yeah, it's a good point. And I guess it's also a question of like, how long can Russia hold those areas that's occupied? Like we're already hearing about some urban resistance, insurgency type activities within the Russian controlled towns and areas. And then it's a matter of how long can they actually sort of hold those territories with brute force against the will of, the, of at least some section of the population. Well, thank you so much, John. I really appreciate you being with us again today and sharing this story about the mini manual for the Urban Defender. Thank you so much, Jessica. You've been listening to the update from Key Podcast. Thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music. See you next episode.